Domino Rich is the principal at Hassel. She is the one. She is one of the most highly regarded and trusted workplace designers, and is passionate about having beauty in our everyday lives, which I love. Uh, Domino and I met about a year ago, and it was one of those conversations where I just wanted to hug her and invite her around for dinner. Um, she just oozed wisdom and uniqueness, if that's even a word. Um, Recently, Domino wrote an article about designing for neurodiverse people. The article was so well written and had such like personal and professional insights. Um, so I reached back out to Domino to catch up again. She was happy to jump straight into a podcast with minimal prep. So here we are. Um, that is so cool of you to just go, yep, let's jump in and do a podcast. Um, Normally, I ask a lot of women to do the podcast and they think, oh, I'm not qualified for that or, oh, I'm a bit scared to do it. But thank you for jumping straight in. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your role? Sure. So, um, hi. Thank you for inviting me. It's lovely. And thank you for such kind words. Really beautiful. <laughs> uh, I'm an interior designer. I specialize in workplace design. Um, but increasingly, my role, and I work for Hassel, which is a um, wonderful big Australian and international design firm. Uh, and I'm really lucky in that I've spent the better part of 20 years working with amazing people and organisations who realise that there's a link between space and culture and behaviour. And so I'm really lucky that I get to shape environments to support people to be their best person at work. But increasingly, I guess my role is transitioning into one where I'm synthesising all of those years of experiences and the conversations I've had and the, the knowledge that I've gained. And I'm kind of transitioning into a, into a role where that knowledge and that insight can be used to tell more stories and to bring more realisation and awareness of particular issues that I feel are really important, which is actually where the article came from. It's that sense of I had something to say, so it just fell out. <laughs> yeah, um, I have that same feeling sometimes, actually, because I sometimes things just annoy me, and I have to write, and that's my way to like put it out on paper. <laughs> yeah, I feel exactly the same way. I actually wrote the article over about three or four weeks in spare pockets of time, sitting in cafes between meetings, or you know, sometimes a bit at night at home, or sometimes when I had a spare moment here and there. And it really, it just kind of, it felt just like a compelling thing that had to get out. It was just one, it's like, it's almost felt like, you know, like if you ever had a war wound or something and you kind of scratch your skin 20 years later and a bit of shrapnel came out, it kind of felt like that yep. thing. But there yep. was just this, I, there was this compelling story that wanted to be told. And I remember thinking to myself one morning, you've got something to write, get it on paper. So I just did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we will come to the article because it is so well written. Um, and it was about your worlds colliding and I guess we'll start with your work world mm -hmm. and you've designed some amazing spaces that our clients will be very familiar with having visited them or seen them in magazines can you tell us about a few name drop a few <laughs> uh, I've had um, 20 years of really amazing opportunities looking back at it and I've spent the better part of my career working for BVN or Hassel so some really extraordinary people to work with and, and projects that I've been working on and I started in Melbourne um, 
in the early 2000s and my first really significant project was for the NAB down at Docklands. So it was that big colourful one that looks like the Lego containers, yep, I the shipping that. containers stacked yep. on the corner. And I worked on that right from sort of day one and I did all of the briefing by myself as this kind of baby interior designer and it was six weeks of being embedded inside NAB, which is an entirely different organisation now. But at the time it was um, interesting, let's just say. And four years later that project came out the back end of it and I can't tell you how much I learned from that and the mental tours I received so that's a really key pivotal one for me where and I think in the context of workplace in Australia there is a lineage of thinking and development Um, Australia's workplace environment is really sophisticated for a whole bunch of reasons and I think most people who are familiar with the subject see that there are seminal projects along that pathway that Australia's had and NAB was one of the first ones that was thinking about activity-based working before we even knew what that was so there's there's okay. actually that one of the one of the central thoughts behind that that workplace is that you had a whole range of facilities around you in easy access that allowed you to do what you need to do in different places and but we just had no language for it back then so it's a really key one for me one that's really dear to my heart I worked um on an amazing project for Santos in Adelaide. I did their headquarter building and it's actually where I met my first friends at Hassel because they were doing the base building. So some of my oldest, oldest friends in the industry came from that project. So that was another three-year project. And then I worked on, I um, ended up in Sydney um, after being in Melbourne for a while and I worked on Freehills as the legal, um, big legal giant. I worked on their workplace here in Sydney for another four years. So I went through a period where I'd actually only done three projects over 11 years, which for some people might sound like pure torture and hell. But for me, I seem to have um, unexpendable reserves of patience that I can go through projects like that. And they're really rewarding at the outcome. But some of my really favourite ones that I've worked on um, are more recent ones. So I did Minter Ellison's Legal Workplace um, here in Sydney and then I did Baker's just recently over at Barangaroo. And so they're some of the more beautiful ones that even though they weren't big or long, they're certainly landmarks for me in terms of they've got a lot of me in them, which is really right. lovely. Yeah. Um, and what are some of the typical things that you think about when you're designing a space? Well, it's funny I maybe and maybe I'm a little bit different in the way I think of things I tend not to see the opportunity in terms of geometry or floor plans or materiality I see opportunity being in how we can create really amazing places for people to do what they need to do at work and I think that comes down to having a really strong empathy with the people we're engaged to work with from a client perspective Mm -hmm. really trying to um I think the word would be purposefully partner with organisations we're working with to get the best outcome for them as opposed to the best outcome for us as designers. And I think it's a minor difference because I I, I don't think that means sacrificing design as a priority. I don't think that means um, shortcutting um, the outcome in terms of its uh, ability to be beautiful or be functional and all of those things that you can look at and assess in some ways. But I do think it's really important to get the design matching the culture, the organisation, their priorities, their purpose and have a sense of really an authentic response because of them. So that's kind of what I spend a lot of time thinking about. What's the right solution that will get this group of people to the right place, whether that's now or in the future or whatever their goals and ambitions are. If there's a cultural change element, then you've got to be looking at the future. But if that's if they're happy with where they are, you need something that matches them today. 
So that's, I think, the way I think about things is what's the cultural imperative rather than what's the physical imperative. Do you get any pushback from that from clients? Like if you say, oh, I want to interview your client services team or your cleaners or your, um, I want to go and interview your junior lawyers. Do you get any pushback? You know, the only time I've ever got pushback is when I was working for the Federal Public Service in Canberra, which is where I grew up. And I had a project manager get angry at me and say, why Why do you need to build a tea point when there's a tea room in the core? You know, these people don't need tea points. But generally, I think most people are open to the idea of actually trying to get to the bottom of something and creating something really meaningful. I think what can get in the way is this sense that everything is too rushed, everything, there's not enough time to do that. And I also think for some organisations, and maybe I've been fortunate in that I haven't worked a lot with with people that are like this, they just want... um, It's kind of lowest common denominator stuff. They want cheap, they want quick, they want... um, undifficult solutions mm-hmm. and sometimes the way to do that is just to kind of whack it in whereas I'm kind of that that's not really fun for me I don't like that no we don't either <laughs> no we like to work with um yeah people who have put a lot of thought into it themselves who bring something to the partnership like you say like mm-hmm. they've really thought about a few things and they want to bring that in and you're not starting with a blank slate really because they're they're bringing information you're bringing your information and collaboratively it's just better absolutely yeah it's partnership yeah yeah, being your being your client's best partner yeah Yeah, absolutely um now in your recent article you mentioned that your 10 year old daughter has been diagnosed with asperger's syndrome and that the diagnosis was excellent in giving you some tools to better communicate with her and to help her flourish so we're just jumping right in here this was my next question on there um so we, you talked about your worlds colliding mm. around, you know, trying to understand, I guess, diversity in a workplace already without this extra layer of neurodiversity, um, but then having these, these personal experiences and then and sort of it opening up to better understanding, better communication with, a, you know, a member of the family. Um, how have you sort of done that for workplace design in the past? Like... How have you sort of understood what the diversity is, and and how does that diagnosis um, and your subsequent re- the subsequent research and lived experience now change that? So so what was it like in the past, and 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 what's it like now? So many different avenues to answer there. So the the first thing that I'd say is. And it's kind of um, something that it's it's not just me; it's our entire property industry. We've thought about and workplace industry maybe we've thought about work um, in in a way thinking about it as a kind of a platform for job descriptions or um, uh, work styles, which really pay no attention to the person who's sitting in that role. And in my article, I write about the fact that there was this book that came out in 2012 by Susan Cain called Quiet, and it talked very much about the um, introverts and the extroverts. But in reality, that's a very narrow spectrum in in terms of thinking about what works for people, how to set people up for success, and what differentiates us, those of us who like to be really gregarious and outgoing and are completely comfortable in a kind of a um, spotlighted way within society at large, not just workplaces, versus other people who, you know, they recharge from being on their own. They don't necessarily take... They can do, but don't necessarily take a lot of joy from social settings and who would rather stay at home and read a good book. 
And yeah. kind of the two ends of those, that kind of spectrum, if you like to think about it that way, it actually goes much broader and deeper and wider than that. And in doing a lot of reading about autism uh, and particularly Asperger's, which my daughter Uh, has been diagnosed with the reading that I was doing in trying to understand how to better communicate and what some of the barriers are both from a communication perspective and I'll, I'll come back to that in a sec but also physically how you can arrange even how you sit next to a person versus opposite a person to have a conversation because for her eye contact is really confronting so we have better conversations in the car where we're sitting next to each other side by side or when we're walking to school holding hands than we do me sitting down looking at her sitting at the dinner table yeah and so thinking about how you can just organize space just by where I sit in a room and thinking about what's confronting for her in terms of how to get the how to get an answer out of her yep. <laughs> how to get an understanding of what she's doing at school what she's feeling because for her her only she the only way she can describe what she's going through often is that things are good or bad they are black and white there is no gray in between and she's either happy or she's sad and she's got a very limited way of describing emotions or kind of her emotional well-being mm-hmm. how she feels i started to realize that Actually, that makes sense for this person that I'm working with over here. They're a little bit like that. And, oh, actually, I've got this really difficult conversation that I've got coming up, so maybe I should actually sit next to that person rather than face-to-face with that person. Let me just experiment with that and see how it goes. And, of course, I've known kind of the introvert-extrovert thing for a long time, and I guess self-assessed myself as being a person who's probably more to the introvert end of the spectrum because I do get worn out and I lose the ability to talk after a day. I don't talk to my husband at home because yeah. I've got no words <laughs> left. <laughs> my husband's exactly the same. Recharge by yourself, yes. That's I fine. Know. We both sit there in silence. The minute the kids are in bed, right, that's it. No more words yes. are being spoken for the rest of the day, which is fine. Um, it works for both of us. Um But, you know, I started to realise that there's all sorts of, like, we're all, and I know sometimes we laugh about this, but we actually are all on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. The spectrum is as wide as there are many humans, right? And we all occupy a unique point in that. Some of us are diagnosable. Some of us are on the edge. Some of us are way over in the happy, social, gregarious creatures. They've got their own issues, though. And when you overlay that on top of a wonderful concern we now have and a conversation that society is having at large about the importance of mental well-being and the importance of speaking up if you need help and the kind of the stigma that's starting to disappear in some ways about Mm -hmm. saying I'm not feeling okay I'm not loving where I am or I'm not comfortable with how things are right now I started to realize that you know what everybody's everybody's like on the spectrum everybody's got their own place and Beyond that, hang on a minute, if we could, if I could take what I know about that now and what I'm learning about it, and if I could transfer that into my work life as opposed to just my home life, I might find that we could do even more good, and I hope we do some good now, but we might find we do more good for um, people in the future. So have have designers typically thought about this when they've been designing? I don't think so. And in researching the article and doing a bit of prep work, I actually reached out to nearly all of the law firms I've ever worked with. I reached out to nearly all the banks I've ever worked with and a couple of other industries, and I said, "Who has anyone designed any space? Do you, do you have a policy, first of all, for inclusion of neurodiverse people? 
nearly everybody said, uh, yeah, we do, culturally, yes, we have programs and it's all about acceptance and diversity in all its forms and that's great. And, and then I said, so how are you reflecting that in your physical environment? Crickets. Nothing. Yep. Nothing from anyone. I think um, very few people are actively seeking people with autism in the workforce corporate workforce yeah. the ones I could find are people like Macquarie Bank who actively look for um, insanely smart people in the numbers of number pattern recognition and autistic people traditionally um, there's many of them who have those skills and so in their quants kind of department the analytics and the research those people have skills that are incredibly valuable and one of the things I'd like the conversation that we're all starting to be able to have about this stuff is that autism is not a disability as such if you kind of turn the language around and it's not necessarily my language but it it is a series of gifts that are just different to other people's gifts yep. some people have a gift for public speaking which is fabulous and wonderful other people will have a gift for seeing patterns where nobody else can see them or um as Greta Thunberg has shown us, um, the teenage activist for the environment, she's got a singular focus and an absolutely unshakable knowledge of what's going on. And her concern for the environment is just it kind of, you can see the passion coming out of her, even though as an autistic person, a diagnosis, she's got the same diagnosis as my daughter. They're not generally looked at as being passionate because it's, yeah. it's an emotion that doesn't come out of them. But make no doubt, the emotions are there with yep. autism. They just struggle to be expressed in ways that neurotypical people normally express those emotions. So I, it's kind of... Um, I think we've got so much more to do in the realms of designing space, not just workspace, but all space, cities, urban design. And I've got friends who've written to me after reading the article saying, right, that's it. I'm changing my platform. I'm including neurodiversity at a town planning level or I'm, I'm talking about this at the next, you know, um, education for primary schools conference, you know. So it's, it's a wonderful thing, I think, in some ways to now be able to start to have a conversation with a really broad group of design thinkers Yes. of all realms about and maybe some people just call it human-centered design I don't know it, I actually just think it's actually recognizing the person rather than the job so I think tying it back to workplace thinking about designing workplaces for work styles but actually changing that now to thinking about designing for people which sounds kind of obvious but it does but it's <laughs> it, it's a minor change because I think one of the things that we always try and do is like put try and put people into categories so that we can better map out a user journey because okay well these these three user personas I, I guess are really similar so we'll put them into a category that's called a primary occupant and then we, we map their events out and we and at each category you put them in you sort of dehumanize yeah them in, that's in right it's an average it's a kind of a pastiche of a person and so yeah. I've been advocating for a really long time that one size doesn't fit all it yeah, can't and I think that's a kind of a not a particularly um uh, challenging statement anymore but I do think if we genuinely mean that we actually have to stop designing for work styles or personas or however we like to categorize an average and we need to start and this is the challenge obviously we need to actually start designing for what individual people real people like actual people real people yep. might need Yep. And that's really challenging because how do you do that and future-proof something? How do you do that and uh, allow for um, change and flexibility over time? How do you how do you do that and get the mix right? 
Um, I actually think part of the solution is not necessarily to tie design output to individuals. I actually think it's just thinking about a broader range of people and actually maybe humanising your thinking about what a person what kind of spaces a person would enjoy, what kind of experiences, what sort of sensory issues are likely to exist in this particular cohort of people Um, and designing for that rather than this person gets that type of space or that person gets a pink workstation because, you know, white ones annoy them or whatever it might be. So I just think um, we've got a broad range of a kind of a kit of parts. We've got a lot of workplace tools. You know, we've got meeting rooms, we've got desks, we've got comfy couches. We've got quiet rooms. But if you take quiet room as an example, usually there's a quiet room. It's a desk and a couple of chairs and a computer screen. We need to kind of take that as an idea and then go really deep and say, what could a quiet room be that would suit neurodiversity? So maybe it's a glass box for the extroverts that's hung out in the middle of atrium and they can do their pole dancing in there while they think about what they're interested in. I don't know. And on the flip side, maybe it's a kind of an anechoic chamber where someone who really doesn't like engaging with people can put Metallica on, you know, like 400 and that's what helps them think. Or maybe it's kind of, you know a room that's fluffy and has bubbles like a bubble machine coming out of the ceiling and you can just sit there in bubbles or maybe it's a kind of a a greenhouse where butterflies can sit and perch on your head and that helps you think that would be amazing do you know what i mean like we just the the types of spaces that we're creating they've got a diversity of function but they don't have a diversity of i don't want to use the word style they don't have a diversity of sensory experience and i think that's one of the things i'm really interested in pursuing Oh, that's so interesting. So I, I worked in the disability sector for about six months at a nutrition company and I met so so many of our customers with, you know, a whole range of different disabilities and you just get an appreciation for, like, what they can do versus what they can't. And what's really interesting to me is that um, this neurodiversity topic and you say, like, you know, you, you, it's a set of gifts. I totally agree with you. Um, also, I find that work is part of what makes a person feel, I guess, um, part of society. Like work is part of my health and well-being because it gives me an identity outside of my kids and outside of my social circle. It lets me interact with people that um, that might have more of my common views that might not be, you know, strictly what my friends think or... You know, I think work can give you this whole identity. So, And I think to strip that away from people because they have a different set of gifts to what you have, like, you know, I'm not bad at public speaking, but I'm terrible at other things. <laughs> and just like, a, you, know, like you know, someone with Asperger's will be maybe terrible at public speaking, but brilliant at pattern recognition. Exactly. You know, it's, exactly. This, it's this give and take and nothing. And, and to sort of put it all onto one to sort of lessen the scale of humans that deserve to be part of that workforce exactly it's just silly both ways because it's great for the human and it's great for the work it is it's great for the company if they have this it is and um i don't know whether you know but um of those in adulthood who are diagnosed in australia with um something um on being on the autism spectrum only 20 percent of adults have full-time employment 
who are diagnosable. And I just think there's so much ability that sits within that group of people that don't have employment that they've got – there's nothing wrong with them. They just maybe yeah. don't socialise as much as other people. And this is one of the things that I was writing about is that we've kind of bought into this culture of being outgoing, right? So your, social, your success at work is dependent on how outgoing you are or how willing you are to build your own brand, how great you are at networking, you know, putting yourself out there, being really connected, you know, being a kind of a social butterfly is what my husband says when I'm out doing bits of being a social butterfly. And I think um, there's so much emphasis on that. We're kind of concentrating on um, the cult of personality as opposed to the cult of, or maybe not a cult, but, you know, the idea of personality trumping content in some ways. And I absolutely agree with you. We get so much, we should our ability to work should inform who we are. It shouldn't dominate who we are. But it's a really important way that we feel like we have a purpose, mm-hmm. you know, and we feel like we're making a meaningful contribution to something beyond ourselves and our immediate family um, and that we have the sense of contributing to the advancement of society. And I think um, if we could do a better job of being um, supporting a broader range of people to do that, we would pay a richer society in every definition of the word. Definitely. Um, now, when we design technology, so so part of our role is to try and take some of that design thinking and apply it to technology. So you know about our platform, it integrates with a whole bunch of stuff and then you customise your user interface on top of that or your user experience so that you know there's, there's, there might be touch screens that people interact with or there might be automation that people interact with. Um, now, our job is largely creating the interfaces and the, and the automation in that overall technical solution. But one of our frustrations is that we don't get to work along the space designers enough mm. um, so that we, because we know that there's so much that's gone into those considerations that we could also tap into as, as part of that technology design. Um, you know, we share, both of us share the, the passion to create beautiful, functional, technological experiences to complement what, what you do. Um, and, and what space designers do. But what are the key things do you think that technology designers should take from interior designers? And how do we work better with you? Especially, you know, considering the, the broader spectrum of people mm. and space and, you know, how do, how do we pick your brains a bit better? <laughs> uh, um, well, the first thing that I'd say about that is that what it, anybody that's designing anything um, for humans to use the starting point is the human bit, right? We're all designing for people ultimately and we don't design in a vacuum. Um, people use our stuff. And so if we're, if we're thinking about, about that as driving what we think is the right choice or the right outcome, then it should be a natural conversation that if we're designing for the same group of people to occupy maybe a workspace that I design with technology that you design and provide that we should have a conversation about that because the experience of the people who use that space with that functionality of technology in it should be coherent and consistent and um, pointing in the same direction for want of a better word. So I think it's one of the symptoms of our industry that things are so siloed, that mm. space, that's a problem that gets solved by this group of people. Technology gets solved by that group of people. Maybe change and you know, kind of HR kind of issues and human capability gets solved over there by that group of people. And, you know, the kind of the classic Venn diagram, people process place or people technology place, if you want to kind of adapt it that way, is that we all overlap and we overlap when it comes to the idea of the human experience. And if more people actually thought about that from the start and then branched out 
um, then I think we'd have more of an opportunity to work together and have conversations that ultimately led to the same wonderful outcome for people who use our products in our spaces. That would be really nice if that could happen. That would be really <laughs> nice. When you're engaging with a business, say like a NAB or a Macquarie Bank, who are those stakeholders in your meetings? Are they the people in culture, the space people? Are you pulling the technology people in as well? Are you pulling in facilities management? What, who, who are those in your meetings? It varies from organisation to organisation and it varies, to be honest, depending on the type of organisation. So say you're working with a law firm, you're probably dealing at um, a kind of a steering committee level with partnership um, and the partnership, you know, you've got owners of the business, they're probably going to bring in people who help them operate and run the business from a facilities and a people and a technology perspective. So you, sometimes you'll get everybody sitting in the room for your weekly design meetings or mm-hmm. contributing to a conversation that gets us to a better outcome. But in other types of organisations, you've got, you know, design is led by this group of people over here or space and premises people. And then you'll have another group of people that aren't related to space and premises. They sit in a technology bucket of people and they're just given a job to put the technology in here. It's really an enlightened organisation that brings them all together under a single, maybe a single advocate or a champion or a leader within the business who's got the ability to kind of plat the threads together to get a better outcome Um, and I find whenever that does happen where you can kind of weave a better story with all of the threads intertwined you get a much better outcome oh definitely like when the when the when the applications that they're working with actually you know talk to the color designs of the furniture and the space you know and and in consideration of how those spaces would be used or zones Mm. for things like you know, one of the thing, common things that we get asked all the time is to show um, desk availability. Yeah. And it's a really funny one because do you want desks red and green on a map, on like digitally, to be able to see where to go and sit? Or would you prefer it if we just use the spaces that you guys have designed and we could tell you how many people are in those certain zones and tell you how free or like how available yeah. they are. So yeah. instead of like going one to one, which desk is available? Well, which zones have more people in them at the moment? And if you want to go and work in kind of white noise, go to that zone. If you don't, if you need to go and do some quiet work, then over here is a little bit more available. And you go with your eyes and you find a desk. <laughs> you know, it's it's it saves a whole bunch of money in rolling out sensors under desks. Um, but it also is just more useful as oh, a human. I love I love what you're saying because it actually talks about what people want from a sensory perspective and I've long suspected that exactly what you're saying I, I would love to design a workplace one day and this is me just kind of putting something out there where we don't just do here's your reception floor here's your internal cafe floor and then you've got you know 15 exactly the same typical floors in between or however many levels whatever it doesn't matter but the, all the typical floors are just typical floors it's kind of cookie cutter approach i would love to design a workplace where say there's i don't know 20 floors some of the floors are for social activities and engagement so if you want that you go there some of the floors are for like the phone free zone in the Qantas club where you don't want to be spoken to you don't want people talking you don't want a natter fest you just want some quiet retreat time and you don't mind if there are people nearby so long as they're working the same way as you yeah and that's just kind of two ideas you can think about um I just think it would be wonderful to kind of blow up. I actually think our model of typical floor versus special floor, however that manifests itself, is just 
uh, it's it's time for something new. It's time to kind of blow that out of the water and do something much more humane, which is about what kind of experience you want as a person because you you should have the dignity and the autonomy to choose that in this day and age. Yeah, yeah. and I would love to see... We, we work with a partner um, who... One of their big clients is Spotify. And, and just, we, you know, we always spitball ideas around what we could do with that. And just having like different zones with different playlists like there could be an area an area of, of a floor that's playing classical music and exactly that really works well when i need to get documents done it's so interesting you say that because the car radio in our car is constantly tuned to abc classic because that calms my daughter down classical music calms her down i've noticed actually when helping her with schoolwork that if there's music on in the house she can concentrate at least twice the length for at least half an hour without needing a break. If there's no music on, 15 minutes, and then she needs a mental break. Right. She needs to go away, do something else, if only for a few minutes, grab a drink, have a quick snack or whatever it might be, 15 minutes tops without music. With music, you can double it. And the type of music, she's got quite particular tastes. She's quite esoteric and she um, a lot more adult taste in music than you would think a 10, 11-year-old would have. But I've seen what it does to her ability to concentrate, and it's remarkable. And so this is one of the things I'm talking about is our sensory, what we see, what we hear, how we feel, the kind of textures on our skin, the colours we're surrounded by, even the, the olfactory, the senses of smell, all of that stuff. We don't, like, we pay attention to functionality. Is the desk height right? Yep. You know, it's kind of you've lost the argument for me if that's what you're arguing about at the moment. We should be arguing about what does the desk feel like? You know, what colour is it? Are there multiple versions? Where And, you know, of course, the classical designers will be horrified by this kind of thing of, you know, maybe it's more than one palette of colour, you know, maybe that's slightly challenging for some people. But I think diversity, if we're talking about setting up people who have diverse needs for success it kind of follows logically that you might need diversity in the types of spaces you provide. And, you know, maybe one size doesn't fit all, but, you know, then we go and put 1,300 of one workstation model into a workplace and expect that to fit all, even though there's something that's different over there and something that's soft over there. You know, maybe that's what I'm saying. We've got a broad enough kit of parts yeah. width-wise. We just need to go depth-wise now, I think. Yeah. And that's why I think activity-based working is probably the model the best gives dignity and choice rather than open plan you sit in that desk for the next 25 years and you know good luck (laughs) I don't think that works at all either so it kind of controversially and even though taking people's permanent desks away might seem counterintuitive to neurodiversity I actually think giving people choice is the answer and you need diversity for that yeah I love this neurodiversity topic um We've got a digital strategist who's also a data scientist in in um, at our work, and in she's got a maths crew. So yep. a, a large group of her friends are all um, you know mathematics geniuses. Um, totally. <laughs> That's out not of me, my by role. the way. I don't know where she gets hers from. My daughter, I've got no idea. It's mixed up at the hospital, I'm sure. <laughs> Totally out of my role. Um, and so a few of those have Aspergers or Aspergers. Um, you mentioned Greta Thunberg in your mm. article, and now again, I love her. Um, <laughs> she's just she's just excellent. Um, what are some of the typical characteristics of people with Aspergers, and why would that make them such an asset to a workplace? So things like, you know, we're talking about this neurodiversity and diversity of spaces, and we sort of have to give people a reason why they would even consider it in the first place. So, so what are the major things that you know, prick up your ears, listen to this, because they these are the assets that someone with 
Asperger's can bring to a workplace? It's a really good question. And if I kind of look at look at my daughter as an example and what, what I consider that she's excellent in and the things that she's not excellent in, she's not ex- excellent in the stuff you would expect with what I think most people understand autism to be. So social skills, communication and a kind of a verbal sense um, is pretty limited. Her ability to describe her emotions is pretty limited. Her ability to be reciprocal in relationships is pretty limited. Mm-hmm. So a lot of take, not a lot of give back. But the flip side to that is that she's extremely intelligent in seeing patterns, and it's not just patterns in numbers. She's excellent at that, but she's also excellent. Like if you give her uh, a kind of a Fibonacci spiral, she can, you know, she can track patterns within a pattern. So she's seeing multiple levels of patterns, and she uses color. She colors. She nearly always draws in an abstract sense. She's not particularly literal, um, and so that's really quite interesting in that she sees patterns everywhere in everything she's also we suspect synesthetic so when she um when she hears music she sees pictures and colors in her mm-hmm. mind so yeah. she often tells us when she's listening to music oh well, that's pink you know, oh, that's a crazy mm-hmm. shade of aqua that thing over there and you kind of you just look at that and you go oh my god what is that and how useful like well i don't know how useful that could be to anyone i've got no idea ask daniel johns he <laughs> yeah he got he, had, he was interviewed by uh, um andrew denton and yes. the same thing yes yeah so maybe there's a, she's also but but paradoxically I think autistic people are often seen as being analytical and numerical and that's kind of their skills and the kind of the rain man stereotype maybe um, uh, photographic memory for a lot of them which can be very useful in some applications definitely but um, for Heli she's ext- my daughter she's extremely creative so she can write fantastical stories about the most weird subjects you know like she (laughs) I even hate to say it in some ways but she wrote about a kind of a um, an ant colony and I can't even begin to tell you what the stories were about but never about people always about animals or the environment or something like that and her current obsession is pigeons she's constructed a world in her mind it's called it's actually got a name it's called the fluff net Uh as opposed to the planet um it's the fluff net and fluffy pigeons are good and yellow fluffy pigeons are even better and she constructs this semi-different world in her mind of um these crazy um characteristics and behavior and she's very excited when she sees pigeons she starts flapping which is a little bit kind of you know in the stereotype what can she do with that well I'm not sure what I do know though is when she becomes interested in a subject like Greta she pursues it until the end so little personal story she's in grade five last term she got an assignment where she was able to choose her own subject for the term research it write a paper and put it back so she chose the uh, environmental impact of rockets okay that's good just a small just a just a tiny small thing that's really easy to research so she spent weeks and I spent most weekends working with her first of all she wanted to know what the environment is so she had to she was very logical about the way she approached the task so she went and researched there's ecosystems you know we've got all sorts of environments that exist on our planet beyond our planet there's also ecosystems and environments you know the universe is an environment mars and the moon and the sun they're all environments so she went and she she understood all of that then she went and she delved into the history of the design of rockets 
completely insane. The word rocket comes from this Italian word from, you know, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, she went and did... the food? (laughs) Rocchetto, yes, yes, yes. uh, Yes, I'd say that there's probably some link. Anyway, long story short, she chose to look at three, she called them powerful rocket exemplars. So she chose Saturn V, which got us to the moon. She chose the space shuttle system. Um, which is retired now, but it had the reusable rocket boosters. You know, they kind of used to dump them into the Atlantic Ocean and then a ship would come and try and fish it out of the ocean. She was quite pleased that they were reusing some elements of the space shuttle, but then she was traumatised that it blew up several times, so we tried to (laughs) protect her from that. And she also chose Elon Musk's Falcon Heavy, which is, I don't know if you've seen it, there's all these crazy videos about these rockets that sort of get these spider legs that come out the bottom and they land vertically back down on a platform. And so she's really excited because she's got this idea of the uh, the reusable rocket system and everything's recyclable. But she's still not happy because she saw that Elon set his Tesla Roadster into space because he was testing a payload. So Elon said, I can either send a lump of concrete into space to test my rocket's capability or I can stick a little mannequin in it called Starman and send my car into space. Well, Elon was great until she figured that out because then she said... That Elon guy, he's just polluted some other environment. And in a billion years, that's going to go crashing into an asteroid or a planet somewhere. And did he really make that in a germ-free, secure environment? I don't think so. So she's got this amazing ability to really hone in on details, but at the same time see big picture. Like, big picture. You know when you're talking to someone, even in a in a meeting, and they're like, oh, I mean, I get this. Like, <laughs> I, I want a room booking solution. And you're just trying to go, like, well, think bigger. Think bigger. Think bigger. <laughs> so your daughter has kind of like that. She kind of has macro and micro yeah, at the same yeah. time, but the bits that sit in the middle where most of the rest of us spend our life thinking about, about, you know, the kind of the medium-sized things, she doesn't – she's not all that interested in. So 20s. I can absolutely see how that's an asset. <laughs> I think it's company. an asset. I think it's an asset. So 27 typed page laters with 65 external references and full bibliography and footnotes at the bottom of the page, she handed her assignment in. And Please tell me it got an A. We got 10 out of 10. So. <laughs> <laughs> and there was even a sense of she's actually quite humorous when she's confident, right? So she, the Falcon Heavy is her favourite rocket. She thinks that's awesome. And I've had to buy all the new Lego space that's out. And she, I've had to buy her a NASA T-shirt. And she's um, while we were researching, we discovered that NASA at the moment, um, you can um, – get your name put on a plaque that's on the next mission to Mars. So we've got a digital printout of it. So she went to school after her assignment was handed in. She said to her teacher, she said, I'm going to Mars. I won't be at school on the first day of term next year. And she handed him his ticket, which comes from NASA. It's got her name written on it, and he didn't know what to do. <laughs> was, what is this? What is going on? <laughs> um, but she's incredibly passionate about that, even though it doesn't come out when you look at her. The passion comes from inside. It's almost yep. unobservable on the outside side but yeah she's super excited she's um she's found a niche so she wants to grow up and um build and uh, design and build her own rocket she wants to be a rocket scientist and a rocket engineer and a rocket pilot okay. and she wants to uh fly to uh pluto i think is her favorite planet at the moment build a swimming pool um and oh, live there on her own solar system though. yeah no we don't talk about that in okay we don't talk about that in our house <laughs> she's a bit upset about that i'm just teaching um the planets <laughs> to my four-year-old at the moment and yeah because the way i was taught pluto's definitely in and it definitely makes sense in. as part and of then the, it was out but the, i think it's actually back in again yeah it's kind of a micro planet in yeah. When she was little, she said to me that um, Saturn, um, she, her favourites were the gassy giants. And I just thought, I don't even know what that is. So excellent. Yeah, cool. 
Um, one part of your article, you, you put a follow-up piece, and it was about mm. ultranauts. Yeah. 75%. Well, it's an organisation. It's This is an article that someone who read my article forwarded me, and the BBC um, Work Life um, section on their website have written about... So Ultranauts is the name of an organisation. Yeah. And they are a software company. They're not developers, but um, they're in the realm of, I think... Um, uh, um, I don't know, pairing people with software, I think, is where it comes from. But they've realised that the work that they do is really suited to the particular skills of autistic people. So mm. 75% of their workforce um, are on the spectrum, which is really quite an incredible thing um, to do. And what they've done to enable that is they've realised that one of the first hurdles that autistic people have is that sitting for a job interview, and I've got friends who've got adult age um, children on the spectrum who tell me these same stories, so I have no doubt that they are true, is that the autism stops your ability to connect over a table in an interview scenario, and you're often asked really confronting questions which most autistic people shut down and they say, I don't know. Like, I can't tell you what that answer is. And it's not that they don't know. It's that they're too overwhelmed to be able to grab the information out of their brain and get it out through their mouth and communicate. And what this Ultranauts organisation have done is they've changed their interviewing process. They've got a kind of a questionnaire which assesses your technical knowledge uh, and a couple of other interesting techniques around taking you know maybe even going offline all sorts of things like that and actually assessing people without that face-to-face interview process which is where um, a lot of those people just don't seem to be suitable again because you know when you sit for a job interview you've got to be sparkling you've got to sound interesting you know you've got to come across as really personable because if you're sitting here in panic as most people to be honest usually are they've just got the ability to put a front on a mirror that's like oh no I'm fine yeah um that that that's such a big hurdle and a barrier to actually gaining work even though the work they would be doing doesn't need that set of skills so um i just thought it was a really interesting thing and it's it's one of the things that i think um you know society as it, we're having we're having better conversations about this stuff at the moment which is just really wonderful what i didn't see them doing though is changing their environment to suit that demographic that they have um, which, you know, maybe I should give them a call. You should. They're a lead for you. <laughs> Absolutely. The, um, when I was working with disability, the, you know, it was on my um, radar a bit more to see what people are doing in this space. And there's a couple of really good examples of, like, um, larger organisations trying to cater for people on the spectrum. So there's, like, a range of T-shirts that Target brought out that don't have the stitching on the inside yep. so you don't get the sensory kind of that yep, scratchiness the tags. that people get. Oh, I can tell you all about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I noticed that Coles, they have times yes. in the week where yes. they change the lighting. Yes. They do all of that. They turn yeah. the music off. They stop the announcements. Yes. Yeah. Familiar so with that. There is some really – there's – it's on the radar. Definitely. And I often wonder, you know, everybody talks about, you know, it seems so prevalent now. It's sort of one in three, one in four kids. It's not uncommon to find them. Um, um, one in ten in terms of um, on sort of on the spectrum, one in three or four will have some kind of mental health issue at some point in their life. One in 100 kids are diagnosed um, in Western society, which that I guess if you put how many kids in a school, 
you know, a primary school, three, four hundred kids, something like that, you're not going to have that many of them. But I think that's the diagnosable ones. I guess what I've realised is that barrier between the diagnosed, formally diagnosed and on the spectrum, which is kind of where we sort of laugh and joke about it, it's an artificial barrier. It's completely wrong to think that just because you're undiagnosed, you don't suffer the same issues um, as somebody with a diagnosis. And I think that's been part of what I've been thinking about is that it's this isn't designed for people who are autistic. This is actually designed for humans, yeah? And yeah. we're all we all need things to support us to be our best person. So we should be thinking more deeply about that. Yeah. Well, that absolutely answers my last question, which was how can we design spaces and technology better to incorporate a diverse group of people? So <laughs> I think you have more than answered all of those questions. Um, congratulations on the article. Congratulations on all your work because everywhere that I go that has been designed by Hustle, people are really happy and they love it and they keep recommending um, you know, the work that you know, you're just getting first-person referrals. They're just coming through which is awesome. Um, Thank you. And I would just love the opportunity to be able to work more closely with you to sort of piggyback on those some of those ideas that you've got going on and actually pull that through into a technology strategy that informs the space as well. So yeah, that would be awesome. That would be lovely. <laughs> Someone make that happen. <laughs> Call us. My money's on like a quarry bank or something. I think you know, they're far enough ahead to, know, to, to maybe think about that. Or, I don't know. International towers are pretty good too, so we'll we'll see what comes. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, um, and we'll call that a wrap. Thanks, Lindell. <laughs>